Good day. I'm Martin Webb, and welcome to the Climate Report for Thursday, December 23rd, 2021. Broadcasting and podcasting on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. There is so much amazing stuff happening in California, in the U.S., and around the world that there is simply not enough time to capture all of it in a half-hour news program. And we've already lost 15 seconds, so get ready to absorb the goods as here are today's climate news headlines. First, a handful of items related to the psychology of the climate crisis. Why do some still think climate change isn't real? Despite the scientific evidence, psychologists remain puzzled why denial of global warming still exists. In the face of overwhelming scientific evidence and news reports of the increasing association between climate change and more frequent storms, floods, and wildfires, it is a puzzle to psychologists why climate denial still has such a hold on some people. After all, if someone drops a brick on your foot, it is hard to find anyone who will deny the force of gravity. Krista Gila, a researcher at the Institute of Future Studies in Stockholm, said colleagues consistently found correlations between climate change denial and conservative ideological views. It includes wishing to protect the status quo and a tolerance for the uneven benefits and risks that come with global warming. But while that finding seems to condemn right-wingers, left-leaning liberals are not off the hook by any means. Many people who believe that global warming is a serious problem and think governments should act to mitigate its effects still, quote, continue living as if climate change did not exist and we had all the time in the world to act, unquote. The researcher said that there are gaps between how we think and how we behave. So perhaps we are all guilty of living in denial. Disregarding the consequences of our actions may enable psychological well-being, despite the distress that results from conflict between our values and actions. Well, another interesting piece, be reassured that the world is not as divided as we might think. Beneath the public discord about Black Lives Matter, the climate, and feminism, there is surprising consensus about how the world should be. Today's widely accepted narrative is that we live in historically divided times. Voters are routinely described as polarized. For a third year running, however, the YouGov Cambridge Globalism Project supports a different interpretation that extreme views are given greater visibility by social media, which in turn creates an especially dynamic climate of opinion and that, for example, it can change quickly. But one whose underlying forces are actually defined across the globe by cohesion than division. The findings of this project have consistently challenged popular stereotypes of public opinion in this so-called polarized age. Indeed, the study finds that there are notable levels of partisan antipathy that coexist with actual significant overlap in views. So while people might think that they're far apart, they're actually not that far apart on either gender, race equality, or decarbonizing the economy. And this held true around the globe. It was found among rival voting camps of Joe Biden versus Donald Trump in the U.S., 
Emmanuel Macron versus Marina Le Pen in France, the Greens versus Alternative for Deutschland in Germany, the Left versus the Law and Just Party in Poland, Vox versus Podemos in Spain, and New Democracy versus Syriza in Greece. Every single country they looked at, the political parties made people identify as opposites, but almost to a T, most people agree on most things. This all hinted at perhaps the most surprising but also reassuring finding of the research into globalization over recent years that in countless areas of life, far from being poles apart, people tend to cluster somewhere in between. Social science researchers can be understandably keen to focus on just what divides populations, but what is more striking is how much people tend to have in common when you scratch beneath the surface of political labels and loyalties Social media may be amplifying the role of identity markers in politics, but people are actually much more likely to agree than disagree on the underlying trends of what is acceptable behavior and what our priorities should be. In another interesting global poll on the psychology, especially related to the climate, young people are more optimistic about the world than older generations, according to UNICEF. Despite mental health and climate concerns, youth believe they can improve the world, according to the survey for World Children's Day. It says young people are often seen as having a bleak worldview, plugged uncritically into social media, and anxious about the climate crisis, among other pressing issues. But a global study commissioned by the UN's Children's Agency, UNICEF, appears to turn that received wisdom on its head. It paints a picture of children believing that the world is improving with each generation, even while they report anxiety and impatience for change on global warming. The landmark intergenerational study, conducted for UNICEF by Gallup for World Children's Day, surveyed two age groups across 21 countries. They looked at people aged 15 to 24, and then people that were 40-plus and they were sampled from different socioeconomic groups to compare attitudes. So 21 countries, different socioeconomic groups, but specifically in the ages of either 15 to 24 or 40+. plus. The results suggest the younger generation are more positive and globally minded than their elders. It suggests the younger generation are skeptical of what they read on social media. Only 17% of young people said they trusted social media platforms a lot for information. And youth are more invested in science and the possibility of global cooperation and international institutions. Study says at the same time, young people are not complacent. They report greater struggles with mental health conditions Amid a sea of mis- and disinformation, they report low levels of trust in the information sources they use most. UNICEF's executive director, Henrietta Four said, There is no shortage of reasons for pessimism in the world today. Climate change, the pandemic, poverty and inequality, rising distrust and growing nationalism. But here is a reason for optimism. Children and young people refuse to see the world through the bleak lens of adults. Compared with older generations, she said, the world's young people remain hopeful, much more globally minded, 
and determined to make the world a better place. Today's young people have concerns for the future, but see themselves as part of the solution. Interestingly enough, overall, the data suggests that young people are products of globalization. For the youth today, 39% identified more with being, quote, part of the world rather than part of their own nation or region. 39% of the youth. Compare that with only 22% of the 40-plus group who identify more with being a world citizen rather than part of their own nation or region. The study showed that with each additional year of age, people on average are about 1% less likely to identify as a global citizen. Well, on the topic of global citizenry, here are a series of international news items related to energy and the climate, demonstrating just how much action is happening around the world and outside the U.S., often ignored by our media. From microgrids to flywheels, hydrogen to solar, and from batteries to coal, our world is on the move. First, China and India are going to drive a world record for coal demand next year. Solar power and other clean energy technologies have failed to keep up with the massive demand for electricity as their economies rebound from the COVID crisis. China and India's fossil fuel appetite will ensure that the world stays well short of what is needed for a net zero 2050, at least for the next few years. This is according to the International Energy Agency. The world's two most populous nations, China and India, between them make up two-thirds of global coal demand. And provisions for coal in China's latest five-year plan, along with India's goal of increasing their coal production, will ensure that the world stays well short of the progress required to reach a net-zero global economy by mid-century. They said that this situation is likely to persist for the next few years. The Chinese and Indian governments are not the only villains of the peace, though, according to the report, with Russia developing more coal fields and expanding their global coal export facilities as part of their national energy strategy. And Australia remains the world's biggest exporter of metallurgical coal used for steelmaking. Well, let's keep talking about India because they are also doing hecka good in other areas. Let's talk about India's first green hydrogen microgrid. California-headquartered Bloom Energy has announced that NTPC, that's India's largest state-owned energy provider, NTPC, has selected its hydrogen-powered fuel cell technologies for India's first green hydrogen-based energy storage project. Through this pilot, NTPC will explore the potential of large-scale, off-grid, hydrogen energy storage and microgrid projects at strategic locations throughout the country. Bloom Energy will provide its technology to generate green hydrogen from renewable electricity produced by a nearby floating solar farm. The hydrogen will then be converted into carbon-neutral electricity without combustion through Bloom Energy's hydrogen fuel cells. And it's all going to power NTPC's guest house, a facility used by NTPC employees and guests. The project is expected to start next year. Bloom Energy's technology is claimed to produce hydrogen more efficiently than others. As it operates at high temperatures, Bloom requires less energy to break up water molecules and produce hydrogen. 
and electricity accounts for nearly 80% of the cost of hydrogen from electrolysis. So when using less electricity to create hydrogen, hydrogen production becomes more economical and accelerates adoption. Well, also in India, they're setting records for solar adoption. They added 1.3 gigawatts, that's billions of watts, 1.3 billion watts of rooftop solar alone in just the first nine months of this year. Rooftop installations through the end of September in India were at their highest for a nine-month period. It makes up about 20% of the country's total solar installations just installed in the last nine months. The 1.3 gigawatts is a record volume for a nine-month window and represents year-on-year a more than 200% increase. With residential rooftop systems making up just over half of the installations, commercial making up the other half, and government systems pretty small. Well, for climate action, the world needs more clean energy deployed with batteries for storage. So let's talk about batteries and storage for renewable energy around the globe. There is another big battery ready to join the Dutch grid. A 10 million watt hybrid energy storage system combines lithium ion batteries and flywheel technology. And it's ready to join the Dutch grid to provide stabilization, helping to use abundant renewable energy generation capacity more efficiently. It's actually the second utility-scale project combining the two technologies on the Dutch grid. The first project uses about 9 million watts of lithium-ion batteries coupled with six flywheels. According to the project partners, the combination of fast-responsive flywheels with lithium-ion batteries reduces the number of cycles the batteries have to take and ensures a longer overall system lifetime, a minimum of 15 years. These two new batteries plus flywheels projects in the Netherlands, when combined together, are still dwarfed by the largest battery being added to the Dutch grid, a 25 million watt battery using lithium iron phosphate chemistry. Well, the deployment of utility scale batteries in the Netherlands is particularly important given the serious network congestion caused by the rapid growth of intermittent renewable energy. Bottlenecks on the Dutch network have become so dire, the country has been considering offering large-scale power solar power generators incentives to actually cut their output or shut down their solar farms entirely. Let's move to France, where Total is switching on a 61 million watt battery. French energy giant Total Energies has commissioned France's largest battery ever with an installed capacity of 61 megawatts. So in the Netherlands, their largest battery was 25 megawatts. France just turned on a 61 megawatt battery intended to provide the national grid with electricity, especially in winter, and to guarantee the security of their overall network. Well, now let's talk about the super low cost of international solar power, making coal for power even more unnecessary and irrelevant in the wealthy developed world. Hungary has allocated almost 300 megawatts of solar. They do, it due, they do it via auctions, similar to what a lot of countries and utility companies do. They put bids out and say, we would like this much solar. Who's got the cheapest price? These international tenders and auctions oftentimes have eye-poppingly low prices for solar power. In Hungary, after publishing their list of 57 renewable energy projects that 
were taken at auction this April. The price for solar power was less than five cents a kilowatt hour. That's in Europe. Then in the Middle East, Israel also finished their tenders for a lot of renewable energy and solar. And solar came in less than three cents a kilowatt hour there. Well, speaking of solar, countries with high adoption rates now have high rates of solar panel waste after 30 plus years of operation. In Europe, around 90% of solar panels are recycled while the opposite is true in the United States, with only 10% recycled due to lax industry standards. Locally, in our area, there is Recycle PV located in Reno, where you can take dead, end-of-life, or broken solar panels. It was started by a Nevada County local and solar industry veteran. Well, Australia is now also catching up, as Australia prepares for their first-ever solar upcycling facility, while solar panel recycling operations expand. As Australia stares down a deluge of worn-out solar panels, recycling and indeed upcycling programs are grinding into gear. In Victoria, a site has been found for Australia's first facility to recover and reuse solar panel materials, while a group called Reclaim PV has extended its manufacturer, partner, and pickup location lists. In our last international piece, while some parts of the world, especially wealthy developed ones, have outdated antique electrical grids that were built for last century's climate, the newest power grids being built for developing nations that are finally playing catch-up with their national electrification are being created state-of-the-art for the modern world. Let's head to Bangladesh, where the World Bank has announced a half-a-billion-dollar loan to modernize the Bangladeshi grid. Investment is required so electricity distribution networks can be upgraded to, again, keep pace with an explosion in generation capacity over the last decade and to harness the potential of renewables with energy storage. It says with Bangladesh having expanded its power generation capacity fourfold and now supplying electricity connections to more than 99% of its population over the last decade, the World Bank just yesterday offered up a $500 million soft loan to help the nation's grid keep pace with those developments. The credit line will pay for more than 31,000 kilometers of power lines, 157 substations, and related infrastructure. The program, intended to modernize Bangladesh's power distribution network, will also increase the climate resilience of grid infrastructure across 25 rural electric cooperatives. The World Bank said the loan, which takes its spending in Bangladesh to almost $2 billion for power alone, would benefit around 40 million people. The loan will finance a grid capable of hosting bi-directional flows of electricity to support rooftop systems exporting excess solar power to the grid. Their new grid will also be set up to handle back-and-forth information while being resilient to climate and extreme weather events, as well as cyber attacks. Okay, now we'll circle back to the U.S. and end with some California news. Let's head back east where a solar nonprofit is helping provide tornado relief projects in Kentucky. It's called the Footprint Project, a Minneapolis-based nonprofit organization that's deploying two solar trailers, two palletized microgrids, five solar generators, and six portable power stations to the hardest-hit areas in Kentucky. 
The Footprint Project's mission is to always build back green by providing clean energy generation to support first responders, meet emergency power needs for the community, and provide light and power where it is needed most. Since 2020, for example, Footprint Project volunteers were some of the first to respond following January 2020 earthquake in Puerto Rico. Deploying 10 mobile solar generators to power device charging, medical equipment, and lighting. And then in Matamoros, Mexico, the Footprint Project provided a solar tent and trailer for a field hospital to power a COVID 19 clinic at an asylum seekers' encampment with 2,500 people. Well, on the East Coast as well, the largest city in the U.S. has banned natural gas in new buildings. In a vote last Wednesday, New York City Council approved a ban on natural gas in newly constructed buildings, joining cities like San Jose and San Francisco that have made similar commitments to reduce emissions. Moving away from natural gas means that stoves and heat pumps will be powered by electricity instead, cutting down on carbon emissions. Nearly 40% of carbon emissions in the country and more than half of New York City's emissions comes from buildings. The new ban applies to buildings that are seven stories or shorter by the end of 2023. Buildings that are taller have an additional four years to comply, and there are some exceptions, including hospitals, laundromats, and crematoriums. Massive pushback from the gas industry against these natural gas bans hasn't stopped cities around the country from taking on the effort. At least 42 cities in California alone have acted to limit gas in new buildings. And Salt Lake City and Denver have also made plans to move toward electrification. In Ithaca, New York, the city even committed to ending the use of natural gas in all buildings, not just new ones. But passing the ban in New York City, the largest city in the country, marks a significant benchmark. And before heading out to the West Coast, we'll also give some shine to the new New York Governor, Kathy Hochul, who's unveiled a strategy to achieve a minimum of 10 billion watts of distributed solar over the next decade. It's a roadmap to extend their existing solar incentive program that will increase its availability to disadvantaged communities and low to moderate income New Yorkers. And it helps New York State meet their goal of 70% of their electricity from renewable by the end of the decade. Expanding this goal is expected to have an average impact for New York customer electric bills of less than 1%, approximately adding 71 cents per month to the average home electric bill. Last year in 2020, New York was ranked first in the nation in new community solar installations and second in the country for total distributed solar installations. Now heading west to Oregon, there is a crisis unfolding in America's Christmas tree capital. As farmers in Oregon had their worst summer ever with heat, drought, and extreme weather threatening the industry. It happened overnight. Larry Ryerson, 78, said he woke up on a Sunday morning in late June in Medford, southern Oregon, to find thousands of seedlings on his 10-acre Christmas tree farm dying. His business, which has been around for almost four decades, typically opens around Thanksgiving and continues to sell all the way through Christmas Day. He estimated he lost 4,500 trees and was only able to keep his U-cut Christmas tree business open for three days this year. He isn't alone. Christmas tree farms across Oregon, the nation's largest producer of Christmas trees, have found themselves in a precarious position after a year of extreme weather. 
Some, like Ryerson's farm, saw huge swaths of their crops destroyed, while others were left with rows and rows of trees with entire sides scalded or new growth withered. Noble Mountain Tree Farm, a wholesale grower in Salem with about 4,000 acres and usually more than half a million trees in sales every year, lost about 280,000 seedlings. And with the changing climate, this will not be the last year of extreme weather. Now, some Christmas tree farmers across Oregon have started taking steps to prepare for a future in which the climate may be much less hospitable to their industry. Finally, here in California, California is going to be the first state to require solar solar power and batteries in commercial structures. The rules that the California Clean Energy Commission voted to approve can be found in the 2022 Build Energy Efficiency Standards. New residential construction must also now be battery ready, and this is expected to add multi-millions of watts of solar as well as storage. California is also tackling food waste with the largest recycling program in the U.S. Residents will soon be required to use green waste bins to dispose of food, which municipalities will turn into biogas or compost. California will soon enact the largest mandatory residential food waste recycling program in the U.S. in January, an effort designed to dramatically cut down on organic waste in landfills and reduce the state's methane emissions. Organic material such as food and yard waste makes up a fifth of California's methane emissions and half of everything in California landfills. California plans to start converting food waste into compost or energy in order to avoid these emissions, becoming the second state to do so after Vermont launched a similar program last year. Said Rachel Wagoner, the director of the California Department of Resources Recycling and Recovery, this is the biggest change to trash since recycling started in the 1980s. Most California residents will be required to toss excess food into green waste bins rather than the trash. Municipalities will then turn the food waste into compost or use it to create biogas, an energy source that is similar to natural gas. Wagoner said recycling food waste is the single easiest and fastest thing that every single person can do to affect climate change. The effort reflects growing recognition about the role food waste plays in damaging the environment and the climate. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture in the United States, up to 40% of food is wasted. It will be a challenge to take care of the larger cities, L.A. and San Diego, the state's two most populous cities, which together account for one out of every eight Californians are among those that won't have their programs ready for all households next month because it takes time to buy the equipment such as green waste bins for households that don't have them and to set up facilities to take the trash. Trash collection fees will go up in many places. The state wants to focus more on education, though, and less on punishment. Governments can avoid penalties by self-reporting to the state by March if they don't have programs in place and simply outline plans for starting them. Cities that do completely refuse to comply could eventually be fined by the state up to $10,000 a day. And lastly, in the nexus between climate change, fires, and clean energy in California, we end today's report with this. Iron flow batteries are being deployed by San Diego Gas and Electric in a new microgrid project aimed at bolstering energy resilience and providing critical backup power to a fire-prone town in Southern California. This new microgrid is planned to integrate into an on-site solar array and provide backup power to several critical community facilities, including a health care center, 
fire station, and key telecommunications equipment. When not in use, excess energy will be exported to the grid, and the project is pegged for activation pretty soon in the first quarter of 2022. A flow battery design is comprised of an electrochemical cell where a membrane separates two solutions, and electricity is produced by exchanging ions across the membrane. Iron flow batteries have a chemistry that lasts 20 years or more with no capacity degradation. This differs from conventional battery chemistries, which generally achieve a 7-10 to year life cycle. These iron flow batteries use earth-abundant iron, salt, and water for electrolyte, foregoing the use of rare minerals like vanadium and lithium. And iron flow batteries present no fire chemical or explosive risk, which means they can be deployed without suppression equipment, secondary containment, or hazmat restrictions. Microgrid-based energy resilience projects are on the rise in tandem with the rise of extreme weather events and climate-driven catastrophes like wildfires in California. The U.S. Department of Energy reports 575 active microgrids across the U.S. with a combined capacity of more than 4 billion watts. That's all for today's Climate Report. Broadcasting and podcasting here on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. I'm Martin Webb. For daily news headlines in between broadcasts, there is the Climate Report social media page, and I host the Balance Beam Live podcast for personal climate action chats. For questions or comments, feel free to email climatereport at kvmr.org. 